Last time we left things with Sergeant O'Connell. We'll have more information. It'll be made available once the autopsy has been completed and the identity of the body's been confirmed. It's been two days now, and I really would have expected to have more news on this. The fact that hasn't happened leads me to think something must be going on. Something unexpected with the autopsy. Something isn't cut and dry. And I don't know if that portends bad news or worse news. In the meantime, as the search parties are called off and we wait for what seems like inevitable, devastating information about Duncan, Lulu finds itself in this uncomfortable in-between place. Last time it was the place between the losing and the looking. Now it's like the place between the finding and the knowing. The Duncan search effort has had a way of revealing unexpected things. The talk of missing people has people thinking of people who aren't missing, which has led to an uptick in text messages, phone calls, in-person visits, just stopping by to say hello, co-workers saying to one another what basically boils down to, I would want you around even if we weren't stuck together at work. Candace Bauer called her mother in prison. She tried to, but a conversation wasn't allowed to happen. Evidently, Wava Bauer is currently on punishment for fighting. Denied phone access. Candace hadn't tried to speak to her mother in more than three years. She'd resolutely refused all contact until just now. Something changed just now in Candace's thinking. Another change. Dr. Bobby Trout is furious with the way crisis information was disseminated. 
I don't like to leave my fingerprints online. I would have joined Duncan's search party, but I wasn't invited into the group. Big things are happening in Lulu, and it feels like I'm not tuned in. So, Dr. Trout has reluctantly signed up for certain online platforms, which she continues to say do more harm in the world than good and turn people into monsters. It's a trade-off she resents. Entering into online circles to which she doesn't want to belong in order to remain in the circles to which she needs to belong. And then there's the way the search parties themselves put unlikely people together. That was also revealing. Groupings and pairings that made me go, huh. Yeah, I guess it hadn't occurred to me that these people would know each other in this way. For example, Carl O'Connell and Angus Jackson once tried to start a company that made apple jelly. I didn't know that. They laugh about it now, now that their failure is far enough behind them, but they weren't laughing back then. Not when Angus punched Carl in the nose while they were shopping for mason jars, which led to Carl needing surgery to repair his septum. Their familial connections I didn't know before. Staying with the Jacksons and the O'Connells for one. I didn't know Angus's wife Lena is the police sergeant's aunt. Sergeant's father's sister. I'm surprised to catch them talking affectionate shorthand about people who have been dead for 30 plus years. Little family anecdotes. You remember the time Cousin Gary bought the above-ground swimming pool? And they relive the whole thing in this rose-tinted way. Maybe that all seems small, but not to me. These revelations hit me like, wow, I was foolishly starting to think I knew something about these people. And here I don't know some of the most basic things. Things so basic, essential connections, they're just never discussed. Everybody just knows them. Everybody but me. Okay. Doubling back to Candace Bauer and this idea of um, strange pairings. This recording concerns a... Um, well, it wasn't part of the quote-unquote official community search party. It was just something that happened. A pairing by circumstance. Candace Bauer and Joe. Joe. Um, so I'm pitched in the trees with a gun watch in the barn. And a ways off, I see Candace Bauer. And she always has dinner with the O'Connells on Tuesdays. And she's just walking down Salmon Creek Road, wearing one of those Help Find Duncan t-shirts like everybody. And I got on my horse, Autism Awareness, and I trot over to her. And she must have seen me from a long way off, because she's crisscross applesauce on the ground by the time I get to her. 
And I go up to her and I ask her, you're looking for that kid that died? And she says, he didn't die, but I'm looking for him. And I say, he your boyfriend? And she takes a real long minute with that one, but finally goes, no. Like, it's a kind of. And I say, you need a hand? And she says, uh, I'm going along the drainage ditch from town. And I say, why are you looking in the drainage ditch if you don't think he's dead? And I realized that didn't sound right. So I say, sorry. And I say, climb up. I'll walk you down the drainage ditch. And she doesn't. She seems scared. So I climb down off my girl and I say, we get a closer look this way anyway. And uh, I walk with her. Horse just goes alongside. And, and we make it all the way to the end of Salmon Creek. And there's Carl O'Connell standing there in the driveway washing his truck. And he sees me and Candace Bauer together and gets this look. I mean, he gets a look. And I holler up to him, Carl, let me do that. And he hollers back, what you're doing's more important. And kind of waves at us goodbye, even though it doesn't really feel like a goodbye moment. And we go, and I can feel him watching us. Feel him having ideas about me. Or her, something. Something weird. I am going to say something I recognize is very unsympathetic. Something I know is selfish and not a good look. The ghouls up there on Hooper's Hill, who I've been pursuing in all of their different iterations my whole adult life. When they destroyed my home over a decade and a half ago, I was just some hapless kid bonking along from day to day. My experience when I started to see something was wrong on that Montana mountain, my experience was isolating and lonely and solitary. My friends and family and teachers and counselors, they made me feel like I was nuts. I believe if some teenage kid had gone missing in my hometown, it wouldn't have been Duncan, it would have been me. I believe there wouldn't have been a search party for me. And this petty, self-pitying part of me is like, well, if I must be doomed, and Duncan must be doomed, why does Duncan get to be doomed in a nicer way? Okay, again, I absolutely hate what I just said. I don't like feeling jealous of a missing person. A person who, any minute now, we're probably going to learn is no longer missing, is deceased. How can jealousy, of all things, be a part of what springs out of that for me? How did I make this about me? So, that's just full disclosure. I feel like it's my responsibility as an archivist to cop to my 
personal smallness in the event it colors the way I represent things in case I'm not being fair. Okay, enough of that. I'm gonna play a recording of Sally Langerhands, who, despite the divorce she's currently going through, despite running her pet shop basically single-handedly, despite her own recent memory lapses and the anxiety that arises from them, she still joined Duncan's search party. Sally Langerhands. So, I found the body, and, uh, yeah, I found the body. Based on what I saw, I could probably guess a little bit about what happened out there. I've been advised it isn't my place to comment on the facts of an open case, but I understand the police have already issued a statement about the attire of the corpse, the plaid, the hat, the rest. I'm starting to freak out about these guys. It's almost like we aren't allowed to mention them, whatever they're doing up on the hill. Okay, Sally. I haven't said this to anyone, but my mind has been like a fog since the time of the smell, the time they set up shop. I think I'm having memory lapses. I'm trying to get it all down in writing, trying to chart out if I'm getting any worse or what. I wake up the day after Easter to a phone call from Carl, who runs the pharmacy across the street, making sure I'm okay, wondering why I have an open shop for the day. I say, Carl, it's Sunday, it's the parade. And he says, Sally, what are you talking about? It's Monday. You should have opened 20 minutes ago. And I check online, and he's right. It's Monday. And that, like, scares the crap out of me, obviously. And I chat with everybody. How was the parade? All that. And it sounds made up. I don't know if I'm alone in this. I know it's been a couple months, but I can't track down the Easter edition of the Nickel Pickle. They tell me they don't have it archived. I say, is that unusual? And they go, um, yeah. I feel like I'm talking to a bunch of crazy people trying to sound sane. I have in my memory book one particular time at the shop. Dr. Trout was in there, and one of those guys comes in, and I go blank. Trout calls me the next day. I never call her back. Well, this week I finally got up the gumption. Pull out the security footage. I cue it up to the exact moment I check out, and the tape cuts out at the exact moment I do just after the guy walks in. Static. And it jumps in, in the middle of the night, what could have been the very moment I woke up with a start in a cold sweat in my bed, at 3.27 in the morning, and there's nobody in the shop. I want to share this with Dr. Trout. I ought to return that call. 
but I really don't want to deal with a psychiatric evaluation. Do I have to be the first one to bring this up? If I could have just one thing I wanted, Lord, would it be to find a corpse? You say everyone is my family in your way. But this is not the time for me now. Put a pause on the divorce. If you will it, front of the pharmacy. The white truck from the service road. And she said this. I go the scenic way home, past Brownie's junkyard where Tamara lives with her kid. And I drive slow. And I see the truck, parked with the junkers, not in the drive, like they're hiding it. She then set out on her own vigilante reconnaissance project. My plan is to talk to Brownie. Tell him I'm interested in that vehicle. Tell him I saw it with the junkers, that Eric could use a new truck for work or something. Hopefully talk bill of sales, pink slips, whatever they are. Maybe walk away with a name, having not just bought what is possibly a stolen truck. The logic was simple. If she can learn who owns the truck, maybe... That can lead to the identity of who stole her husband Eric's old Dodge from the driveway. She can place it in Brownie's junkyard, if she's right that it even is the same truck. But that's far from a smoking gun. So what can Melba Carnes do now? In the words of Deputy Steve Steves IV, Security alarm fever has taken a hold of the valley. Melba Carnes can batten down the hatches. Melba Carnes.
now I'm taking some quotes on full-blown security rigs. ADT, FrontPoint, Protect America, Protection One. And then you're talking about wireless equipment, total home automation, two-way voice doodads, remote video access. Oh, activation fees, equipment fees, lifetime warranties, cellular broadband landline monitoring, remote controls for your home, video monitoring from your phone, remote thermostat, lighting, and appliance control. Thermostat. A dead body and they want to sell me air conditioning. Ma'am, it's so much more. And I say, pop, 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 point to the door, do some convincing that becomes shouting, and I'm still screening the damn phone calls with discounts and the once-in-a-lifetimes and the upsells. It's not like we could afford the fancy electronic stuff in the first place. We're not Janet and Roy Coons out here in the county. I shouldn't have said that. Anyway. Eric talks about a dog, because of course Eric talks about a dog. Best security system there is, he tells me. Yes, I understand that, Eric, but then we'd have a dog to take care of. I'll take care of him. Okay, what about when we go to Westport? If we ever get to go to Westport again. Well, it's a beach. You gotta take the dog to the beach. Um, am I missing something here? Isn't the whole reason we started this conversation, how do we secure the home while we're gone? Talk about security systems, you get thermostats. Talk about security systems, you get playtime on a beach with a new damn dog. Am I missing something? So, here's a surprise. Evidently, Sergeant O'Connell was furnished with the results of the autopsy some time ago. At least yesterday. And it turns out Sergeant O'Connell took this information, and she discreetly did something... dangerous. Police Sergeant Mary Ann O'Connell. We found the wrong person. Duncan Coons is still missing. We're scaling back the search. And... Tamara Tillman is dead. She was found unresponsive. Uh, wearing the, um, the... Approximation of the uniform of one of those engineers up on Hooper's Hill. Do we still assume they're engineers? But... The headlamp. Now, I'm only in the very early stages of drawing up the report, but I've been taking very exacting notes on uh, their... That's not the headlamp they wear. Everything they wear is the same. I've seen no variance, not a tear or a wrinkle or a scuff on a shoe. So, why Tamara's off-brand headlamp? I'm having a hard time piecing together what it is these 
meticulous people would want with Tamara Tillman. I don't see how she fits in. So I go up to Hooper's Hill, which I had only tried the once. And since then, it's been nothing but paperwork and evidence gathering and getting stonewalled by the mayor's office. But that was before I had a corpse on my hands in what looks a lot like their uniform. And I drive up the hill and I'm expecting all these guys like last time waiting for me, ready to give me the runaround. But nothing. Last time, there was the sound of machinery, engines running, lights from guard towers. This evening, it's sealed up tight. So I put my cruiser in park. And I walk. I walk a lot. I walk the entire perimeter. And still nothing. But walls and silence and not even a window or a fence or a little crack to peek through. Nothing. But I, I am noticing a smell that... Oh, it sort of changes depending on where you stand. It's funny. Finally, I make my way back to the front or the back or back, back where I started. And somebody took my squad car. Boom, crime scene. I'm taking notes. And at that moment, I hear meow. Oh, goosebumps are going up and down my arms. So I put that in my notes. I about face and I start the long, long walk back down the hill because I know I'm pressing my luck now. And finally, I get to the bottom of the hill. My front foot just connects with the level ground and all at once, the machinery kicks on. The searchlights go on. I can see them reflecting up off the clouds, like outside a movie theater or a car dealership. And I swear to you, I heard them cheering. They're celebrating. I see lights reflecting off the highest tower, blue-red, blue-red, my lights from my squad car. Get me a warrant. Now I've got charges. But no. Why was that so easy? Are they helping me? Are they baiting me? Real quick before we go. The makers of this podcast are happy to announce the launch of a new website, weatherfrontproject.com. On top of Hooper's Hill is a part of Weatherfront Project. Visit us there to access the audiobook Stonewood, which details exactly how it is Storm Chaser ended up on the outer edge of society. 
You'll also find information on upcoming releases, including a second audiobook and a radio play. And you can sign up for our monthly Weatherfront Project newsletter, which is the best way to keep in touch with us. We look forward to seeing you at weatherfrontproject.com. All over Lola.